funding from private investors, true private investors, mom and pops, accredited, non-accredited, whatever they are, that's the secret sauce. Welcome to the Real Estate Monopoly podcast. My name is Kerwin Donis. My brothers and I got into real estate investing to achieve financial freedom and help underserved communities in Guatemala, where our mom is from. Real estate is the vehicle we're taking to achieve our goals. And you can too. On this show, we share the stories of some of the most successful real estate investors to show you that you can succeed in real estate just like they have. Each episode, we deliver inspiring and educational content that will empower you to launch your real estate investing career and achieve your financial goals. Let's go. Josh Cantwell manages over $40 million in private money, which is deployed into multifamily real estate and apartments. He has been involved in 1,000 plus wholesale, rehab, rental, foreclosure, and apartment transactions, and currently holds a portfolio of over 3,000 cash flowing apartments. He is the founder and CEO of a variety of successful businesses, including Freeland Ventures and Strategic Real Estate Coach. He founded Strategic Real Estate Coach in 2007 and has taught thousands of investors how to replicate his success. Josh is also the host of the Accelerated Investor Podcast. Josh has a background in financial advising. This prepared him for capital raising and real estate investing. We're really good at raising money. Um, and a lot of that starts actually, Kerwin, from my background as a financial advisor. When I graduated from college, my dad almost killed me <laughs> when I went into financial services. You know, I had a big, expensive college education. And then I got into financial services and I took an all commission job selling financial services, mutual funds, IRA rollovers, life insurance, estate planning. But frankly, Kerwin, my dad should not have been surprised. My dad was an entrepreneur. I watched him in high school and college. I did internships for his company. He had a financial services company in the employee benefits space. And so uh, I basically followed his lead. He didn't you know, tell me to become an entrepreneur. He didn't you know, mentor me into entrepreneurship. I just watched him as an example, uh, really looked up to him and everything he accomplished. I mean, he went from bankruptcy when I was in sixth grade to having like two houses and three cars and a business by the time I was out of college, right? So you look at that basically eight-year, 10-year window, it completely changed his life around from bankrupt to multimillionaire in 10 years. So I took notice of that. And then what happened, Kerwin, is when I was a financial advisor, I was selling these different financial regular products based in the stock market. And I noticed that a lot of my financial planning clients own real estate. They, they own apartment buildings. They own rental properties. They owned uh, you know, uh, strip centers and they leased them out to restaurants and they leased them out to different retail type of stores. And I'm like, you know, this is pretty crazy. Some of my best, uh, most wealthiest clients, they don't have all their money with me in the stock market. They have their money in real estate. And I could not pry that money away from them out of real estate to get it in the stock market. And so I took notice uh, that was in 1998 when I graduated. By 2001, I had already bought my first investment property. And by 2004, I left the financial services altogether to get into real estate. So that's really where my background begins. And that's where my passion for raising money really started. Working in financial services gave Josh a lot of skills that have helped him along his real estate investing journey. He also realized something that everyone has in common something that would empower him as a capital raiser in real estate. 
look, I think the biggest thing about the financial services business and what it taught me was to be comfortable around people to talk about money, right? I was 22, 23 years old, and I was dealing with clients that were three times and sometimes four times my age, right? I was, I had some clients that were in their 80s and I was 24. You know, they were four times my age or three times my age. And I just realized that people all have the same objective, right? People want to be comfortable. They want to feel secure. They want to make the right investments. Many people would certainly be happy, you know, totally hitting a grand slam and getting a huge return, like some of the stuff you've seen in crypto lately. But most people don't really want that. What people really want is just peace of mind. They want security. They want to get a good return and kind of just forget about it, forget about their investments and just go along leading their happy life, hanging out with their kids, their grandkids, their friends, going to baseball games, you know, going to football games, watching NFL. That's what they really want to do with their life is just live it. Money is just a tool. So they want to set their investments and forget the investments, right? They want to have peace of mind and sleep well at night. That was one of the biggest lessons I learned because, Kerwin, look, I, I was a financial advisor during the crash of 2001, right? Then I was a real estate entrepreneur flipping houses in the crash of 2008, 9, and 10. Thank God I was wholesaling properties, doing short sales. I, I didn't get uh, crushed by that. I actually did really well in that market. And then, of course, you had the, you know, the financial meltdown of, of COVID. So I've lived through three of these financial crises now as an adult, uh, one as a financial advisor and two in real estate. And at the end of the day, Kerwin, the best investment in all three of those crashes was something that cash flowed, whether it was a bond that threw off a coupon, whether it was a dividend paying stock that threw off a dividend whether it was a real estate uh, rental property that threw off cash flow, whether it was multifamily real estate that threw off a bunch of net free spendable cash flow, distributable cash flow to GPs and LPs, no matter what it is in all of those, the backbone of those people that did well, made money, and that slept well at night were the people that had investments that threw off income. Yeah. Okay. That's the big one. Now, if you have that, then you could certainly take a flyer on a crypto investment or a stock investment or try an e-commerce business. So I realized as both a financial planner in 2001 and a real estate entrepreneur in 08, and then again in 2020 during COVID, the number one investment to own was something that threw off passive income. And so that was the main lesson that I learned through all three of those crashes. Now, you take my experience with cancer, you, you wrap that in, right? That was, I was diagnosed in November of 2011, actually, I'm going to be uh, 10 years coming up this November. The lesson there, Kerwin, is the same lesson. It's that when I was flipping houses in 2008, 9, 10, 11, having a lot of success with it, and all of a sudden I got sick. And my doctor said, Look, you're, you're going to have to go through all these tests. You're going to have to prepare for surgery. You're going to have to recover from your surgery if you even make it, because the survival rate from cancer is just. This, this type of cancer was just 8% and 8% survivors. So even if you make it, it's going to be a son of a gun. It's going to be really, really difficult. And through that lesson, I also learned that I did not have any real passive income coming in. I was an, an, a real estate entrepreneur, transaction engineer, transaction entrepreneur. Was I owned a brokerage. We were flipping houses. We were doing wholesale types of deals. 
did not have a lot of passive income. And so I learned again from that lesson, one of my best investments during that experience in cancer was that I had recruited and raised a bunch of private money that I put in play. And I was earning passive income from that. And I was also earning passive income by investing with other guys who were flipping houses, but I was their lender earning passive income. And so you take these four different significant events, the crash of 01, the crash of 08, the COVID crash, and my story of surviving cancer, you get the same outcome, the same lesson from all four, which is the number one thing to own in any of those crises is some cash flowing investments, some dividend paying stock, some sort of bond, some sort of real estate. That is what gets you through. That's ultimately what's also makes you rich, not you know, getting lucky on a crypto play. It's about owning an asset that pays you forever. That's what I've learned during those significant events in my life. Financial freedom is most people's primary motive for getting into real estate. This was also the case for Josh. When he started out, he was wholesaling. If we all went back and, and, and was real honest about the books that we read that got us into real estate, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, Multiple Streams of Income by Robert Allen, uh, you know, any kind of those kind of books or podcasts, we all got into real estate for financial freedom. Okay. Financial freedom comes from owning an asset that grows and appreciates in value with somebody else's money or none of your own money. But then all of a sudden, just like you did, Kerwin, just like I did, you're like, well, how do I get into real estate? Why well, I, I, you know, I got to get in. I can't really buy an asset. I don't have any money. I don't have any extra money to put down. Even if I do, I have a limited amount of my own money to put down on deals. And so I've got a wholesale because I want to do a lot of transactions and make money from it. And unfortunately, a lot of us, it's like crack cocaine. It's like you, you start using it and you start making some money with it and it's addictive and you fall into a niche and that niche is paying you. It's paying the bills. You're making some money from it. You feel good. Maybe you're making a killing with it. I know guys that have you know wholesaling businesses that make $4 million a year. That feels good, but that's still a job, right? Even if you own the company that does the deals, the company must do transactions to make money, okay? New transactions, find a new house, find a new seller, negotiate a new deal, find a new buyer. It's a whole new transaction. And I can tell you, Kerwin, one of the biggest things I've learned is actually from my business partner, Glenn. Uh, Glenn has a background in private equity, buying and selling companies. And Glenn said to me, look, Josh, the companies that are valued at the most amount are companies that book in income and they're on a contract for two to three to five to 10 to 20 years. Wall Street looks at companies and their valuation based off of long-term contracts that are booked where they know the revenue is going to come in over and over and over. There's continuity that comes in. Well, what do we get from apartments? We sign a lease and we essentially get a 12-month continuity payment. And guys, I, I mean, I look at rent rolls all the time. I underwrite deals weekly. I offer on deals weekly. We own 15 syndications. We own 3,700 units. I have 3,700 contracts with residents that pay rent to us every month. And so that is a form of a long-term contract that Wall Street's going to value with the highest multiple, the highest you know, X amount of, of investment. So 
you take another lesson away and say, okay, what did I learn from being a, a wholesaler was that that business of doing transactional work is valued at the lowest multiple, which is essentially zero versus real estate, right? You take a business, uh, you know, if you make a million dollars, right, of net operating income and you divide that by a six cap, that's worth $16 million, okay? So we know that that's worth a multiple, right? A huge multiple divide by a six cap, that's what you get. And so that lesson of booking contractual income versus a one-time transaction, one is worth 16X, the other one's worth 0X. So what people need to do, and Kerwin, I think the big takeaway is this, and I had to come to this realization after my surgery, you're going to have to make a decision for all of your listeners that listen to this great podcast that Kerwin and his brothers put on. Listen, you're going to have to make the realization one day to say, it's okay if I make a little bit less money for a while, while I buy multifamily assets and apartments or self-storage or mobile home parks, and I can book in this long-term income that's going to set me free, which is what you originally learned from Rich Dad, Poor Dad, which is what you should have done from the beginning. I made the mistake, Kerwin, you made the mistake, we all make the mistake. So those people that realize the mistake, even if it's a lucrative mistake, right? And they course correct even if you don't make as much money for a couple of years, it's okay because you're booking in these long-term contracts, these long-term rental agreements that are going to pay you for the rest of your life and that are worth a multiple versus zero. That's the decision that you have to make. Get off the crack, right? Get on a plan to have long-term wealth. That's what decision you have to make. Wholesaling and other real estate strategies are very transactional. Josh decided to pivot and move into the multifamily space. He leveraged his strengths as a capital raiser, and this opened doors for him. Like a lot of people, I wish I had like a great plan that I put together that worked, but I didn't. It was just by accident. Um, you know, here's what happened. Basically, after my surgery, I realized that by focusing on raising private capital and getting away from the transactional business of wholesaling and flipping, but by controlling private money, I could actually partner with and JV with other flippers, other rehabbers by providing them the capital. And I could get, let's say, a 10 or 12% return plus 30 or 40% of the profit. And all I had to do was bring in the cash, right? So, and that worked. I did deals with my own family, my brother, and then I started to expand to other guys. And I had a stable of different flippers, operators that I was investing with, my money and other investors' money that. I was raising and working with them and we were all partnering together. Well, like it became so successful, so successful so quickly, I decided to just put it into a private equity fund, right? We went from uh, one-off private lender deals and we did a 506B, a PPM, we did the whole thing. And then we moved on to doing a fund structure. And then in the fund structure, what happened is we, were, we, we all of a sudden had about 150 to 250 open loans at any one time with my own money and this money that's in this fund. Well, we started funding, Kerwin, what happened is we started funding some commercial deals. We, uh, these flippers, regular in, re, uh, resi investors, started bringing us some apartment deals. And we started brokering loans and funding their small apartment deals. It was really small balance. It was under $5 million. But we were funding a million, two and a half million, 600 grand, larger private lending. And I got to see 
the financials. I get to see the T3s, the T12s, the T24s, the financials, the rent rolls. I got to take a look at all that stuff through a lender's perspective. And we also started brokering from some larger companies that would allow us to, to, to broker uh, their loans. And then it got to the point where our investors, and now at this point, we had a, a, about 200 investors and about $40 million in our fund. The investors started saying, well, hey, Josh, this, these investments in your fund are great. What else do you have? And so I had two or three good buddies that were already a couple years ahead of me in the apartment game that were active operators and syndicators. They were looking for money. And for them to expand, they knew that they had to JV with a guy that had deep pockets. Well, that was me. And so I was able to take some of my investors in my fund and say, okay, let me partner with these guys in their apartment deals. They were the operator. They were the boots on the ground. I partnered with them. I co-sponsored loans. I co-syndicated deals. And I brought the equity or a big chunk of the equity to those deals. And so then, so that was the next step, right? So the first step was doing individual private lender loans. The second step is lending in a private equity fund. The third step was, was JVing on deals, right? And Kerman, the first deal that we ever JV'd on was a $40 million, 730 unit, right? So whoever tells you that you have to do a small deal or a 50 unit deal or a 30 unit deal to get in the game, that's probably good advice, but that doesn't mean you have to do that, right? You can do a big deal right out of the gate if you want. Um, so we did a 730 unit, then we did a 407 unit, then we did a 200 unit, then a 216 unit, and we were JVing on all these deals. And then it got to the point where I'm like, you know what? Like I look at my balance sheet and I'm like, my balance sheet's grown by like eight figures in just the last couple of years. And we were successful before, but holy smokes, man, this is really taken off. And I looked at my balance sheet and I thought, you know what? Like, we've just got to wind down our fund and we've got to just do our own deals where we're the sponsor. We own the majority of the equity. We're not just JVing with other people and co-sponsoring, co-syndicating, but we are the GP. We're finding our own deals. And that started to happen about three years ago. And then when COVID hit, the last step curve, when COVID hit, this is just exacerbated the speed because we decided to completely shut down the fund and focus all of that money and all of our attention on our own apartment portfolio. Um, and so this year we've, we've bought uh, about 975 units um, just this year in 2021. And we have 284 units on deck to close by the end of the year. So we'll do almost 1300 units this year, just focusing just on apartments. So long story, right? You know, long story, but step by step, just paying attention to the market, paying attention to what investors wanted, paying attention to what was making us happy, and paying attention to what was really truly building our balance sheet. By paying attention to what the market was telling us, that's what dropped us into full time apartment ownership and syndication. Capital raising is Josh's superpower. He's built a team that has empowered him to focus on his strength and expand his business. Yeah, I'm freaking Superman, dude, when it comes to raising money. <laughs> I, like I just, and I say that with all due respect, but yeah. that's my superpower. I'm really good at it. Um, and like, even within my team, my team knows that that's my superpower. So they just let me do that, right? That's what I primarily do as the CEO. But again, go back to the advice that my friend Glenn gave me. He said, look, when I look at these companies on Wall Street, whenever they're making a big announcement, the CEO is making the announcement. And why is he the one in front of the camera? 
It's because he's trying to get eyeballs and raise money for his company. So he told me years ago, Glenn, Glenn says to me, he says, Josh, you know, as our CEO, we've got to just build everything around you, insulate you from everything else in the business and let you just raise money. And if you do that, we'll take care of everything else. Um, and I was like, okay, cool, dude. Like, I love, I love this business partner I have because he's finally get, getting it. He's not asking me to do CapEx. He's not asking me to do property management. So my job now as a CEO is a couple of things. One, to raise and recruit tremendous amounts of money. Number two is to underwrite deals, to find deals and underwrite deals and put my stamp on it. Like everything we buy has my approval. And finally, number three is to look for blind spots. Okay. And what I mean by looking at for blind spots, I mean, primarily um, showing up at properties unannounced, walking properties and looking for issues, problems, talking to residents, talking to property managers, asking them what's going on and when nobody knows even who I am. Um, and also looking at P&Ls, looking at financial statements and determining where are we winning and where are we losing? So those are my, that's my, that's my main job. Now, how have I built infrastructure around me? It's a great question, right? Because I can't do successful deals without it. So a couple of things. So I've got a partner. He's a minority owner in our business. And his main job is to oversee our CapEx, right? So his job is to oversee our VP of construction. We have a VP of construction and the VP of construction oversees all of our partner, all of our uh, contractors. Um, so you have the contractors at the bottom, you have our VP of construction, and then you have my partner who oversees that, that vertical, that silo in the business. Then I have another minority partner who oversees our property managers. So we have the actual property managers that are at the buildings. Those property managers report to their boss who owns the property management companies. And then my partner sits on top of them and oversees them as an asset manager. Right. So you have that silo or that vertical that's you know his responsibility. Okay. Then within the cap raise and the and the underwriting, I've got my CFO who works with me side by side and looking at PLs and 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 also raising capital. And then we have our director of operations, Jen. And Jen is responsible for working with all the investors that I meet through podcasts or speaking events. Um, networking, email marketing, videos, YouTube, pod, all the things that we do. We have a huge digital marketing presence and that digital marketing presence allows us to meet a lot of people. And Jen is responsible for working with those people, talking with them, getting them on one-on-one -on -one calls with me or getting them on webinars with me um, so that I can present to them and talk to them about our strategies and our investments. And so we've really got a great team. We don't get everything right. We definitely make mistakes, but um, on a regular basis, I feel really confident in my kind of seat on the bus and then everybody else's seat on the bus and what they're doing and who they're reporting to. And that allows me to just kind of look for blind spots. Like what's going on with property management? What's going on with CapEx? Are we, you know, when I pull up to a building, what's the resident experience? How's our leasing going? Do we need to make concessions on, on a certain building to fill it up? Do we need to offer referral bonuses? These kind of things. So I'm just kind of poking holes in the business all the time to look for issues. That's the CEO's job, right? And if you're listening to this podcast and you're doing anything but that, number one, you don't have the right team yet. And number two, you're allowing yourself to get in the dirt, in the muck of your business. You need to have somebody else, hire somebody else, bring somebody else in to do that.
So you can focus on underwriting, looking at deals, raising capital and blind spots. That's your job. That's my job. That's Kerwin's job. That's what we do to have success. And you got to insulate yourself around everything else. Many investors try to hard pitch people when they're attempting to raise capital. Josh's process for raising money has helped him raise millions. And it's a great strategy that others can use as well. Look, the process that I use for raising money, it's, it, it's something that we've just done, tried over time, and we've really perfected it, right? And so it really for us, it kind of starts with, we call it a regular recurring multi-medium marketing approach. So we call it R2M3. R2, regular recurring, M3, multi-medium marketing approach, MMM. And this podcast is a part of it's part of that strategy. Okay. And the way this works is, first of all, is creating a content marketing machine. For us, our content marketing machine starts with podcasts. See, I get to get on podcasts like this and my own podcasts and other speaking engagements. And I get to have a voice. That voice gets recorded through video and audio. And then we have writers, we have content creators, and, and we have uh, graphic designers that create YouTube videos, blog posts, Facebook posts, Facebook lives, Facebook groups, all these different things that creates this content machine. And we have multiple ways to reach out to people. So if they find us on LinkedIn, they can also find us on Instagram. They can also find me on Facebook. They can find me on iTunes, YouTube, all these different places. The second piece of it, number two, is we go to offline meetups, you know, face-to-face meetup groups, seminars, speaking engagements. So real live, and I call this the one to many, right? Speaking engagement. Like I like doing this type of podcast with you because although you and I is one-to-one, there's hundreds or thousands of people that are going to hear this and it's going to become one to many. It's going to be your voice and my voice that gets out to thousands of people or tens of thousands of people, right? So that's the second big piece of it is is getting out in live format, okay? Step number three is to point people to a place where they can engage, okay? Step number three is engage. So essentially, they opt in. They opt in to get on your investor list. They opt in to get on your email campaign. They opt in for more information or for an ebook. They have to be able to opt in somewhere, Right? You have to find them so they become sort of a priority prospect of yours. Okay. Then step number four is we have to drip on them. We have to drip on them through autoresponders. So we have a 32-day autoresponder. When somebody opts in, they get eight messages over 32 days that tells them very specifically what we want them to hear. Okay. So specifically about what we call the seven commandments of multifamily investing, we specifically tell them about the five strategies to make sure you make important, secure, safe investments. Okay. We're not really just pitching us, Kerwin. We're pitching how do they make intelligent decisions, which goes all the way back to the beginning of this podcast. When I talked about when I was 23, 24 years old, that people want to set it and forget it. So now I've been doing this now for over 20 years. And I know that I want to teach people strategies where they can set it and forget it, where they set it and forget it with me or set it and forget it with another investment. I want to give them enough value that they're like, you know what? This guy, Josh, is really important in my life. 
So we drip on them. That's step number four, autoresponder, physical newsletter, weekly email broadcasts. Okay. What that's doing, see, I heard a strategy, Kerwin, a long time ago that said marketing is sales in print. Okay. Now you could say marketing is sales, right? And it could be lots of forms. It could be the verbal word, like we're talking now. It could be print, it could be webinar. There's all these different ways. But again, it's the one-to-many concept of I send one email and I reach thousands of people. Kerwin, we have 70,000 people on our email subscriber list, okay, that have opted in through this process that I'm describing. So when I send one email, if we get a 20% open rate, that's 14,000 people that I've reached in one day, okay? So you've got to drip on them, autoresponder, physical newsletter, weekly email broadcast. Then you move on to step number five. In this drip campaign, there's a link and the link is a Calendly link. It's very basic Calendly link where they can jump on my personal calendar for a one-on-one strategy session. And it automatically creates a Zoom link. So it's tied into Zoom. They automatically create a Zoom link and they can jump on my calendar. Okay. And I already know because of step number three, the engage step, when they, when they opted in, they told me whether they're accredited, non-accredited, how much money they had to invest, what their net worth is. So when I get on the phone with them on a Zoom call, I've already got that information. When I get in a Zoom call with them, they've already gotten my autoresponder, my, my, my physical newsletter, my weekly email broadcasts. So I'm familiar with them and they're familiar with me. Okay. So through that familiarity, when we finally meet, right, all the muck, all the ice breaking's already been done by technology, by podcasts, by email broadcasts, physical newsletters, Facebook posts. The ice is broken. So now I go into step number six, which is warming them up to make them an offer. Okay. And this is probably the most important step. I could do a whole three hour training on just number six, just this six step, but this is where we slow roll investors. And I simply tell them, look, the SEC requires that we have a prior existing relationship with investors before they invest. So if it's okay with you, I'm going to take my time. I'm going to go very slow. I'm going to learn more about you, your investing goals, your risk tolerance. What have you invested with in the past? Because the SEC requires it. But also, Kerwin, that's on purpose because the slower I go, the more money they invest and the more often they invest Because again, go back to when I was 23, 24 years old, Kerwin, they want to set it and forget it. They want to make a smart decision, get cash flow, and then go live their lives doing the fun stuff. So if I'm the conduit, if I'm the platform, the way that they can set it and forget it, and they trust me, then I win and they win. Okay. So when I tell them we're going to go slow, when I tell them, Kerwin, I say this all the time, look, I could use your money, but I don't need it. That only works 100% of the time, okay? It only works 100% of the time because that's true. I could use their money, but I don't need it. And I, by the way, I used to say that even when I needed their money, I used to say that. So, um, but it works because people like, they don't want to invest with somebody who's desperate. They don't want to invest with somebody that needs the money today because again, what do they want? They want the peace of mind to go live and do the fun stuff. And so just be that person. So this six-step process, the content machine, the offline meetups, the engagement, the drip, the strategy session, and then the warm-up with the offer, that's worked for us like freaking genius for the last five or six years. 
So that's the process. I know that's a lot. I'm sorry. We only got so much time. Try to fit it all in. I hope that was helpful for your audience. Meeting investors in person is a great way to build relationships with them. But many times, people overwhelm potential investors with too much information. Josh does the opposite. So two things. Number one is don't give them too much information up front when you're at the soccer game. Like when you meet someone at a soccer game and they say, well, what do you do? I tell people, this is exactly what I say. I raise capital for real estate investments and apartment buildings. We buy distressed apartment buildings and properties, and we pay our investors a fixed double digit rate of return and then stop. Okay. And when you do that, what's going to happen is they're going to say like, oh, like if they're older, like, you know, older, like me, 45 and older, they're going to be like, oh, like Carlton Sheets. Right. Or if they're a little bit younger, they're going to say, oh, like HGTV. Or they'll say something like, oh, I've always wanted to own a rental property. And they're like, how does that work? And I'm like, well, it works great. You know, don't tell them how it works. It works great. You know, it works great. We've got a couple hundred investors and blah, 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 blah. But don't tell them. And then if they really start keep nudging you and you're still at the soccer game, you're leaning on the fence or you're sitting in your chair, you're watching your kid play soccer. What I do is, again, the takeaway, I take away what I say, look, I would love to sit down with you and talk to you about this. You know, we've got hundreds of investors and um, I certainly can point you in the right direction. I've been raising and working with investors for years. Uh, but why don't we just enjoy the soccer game? Why don't you give me your cell phone number and we'll set up a time? Matter of fact, here's my cell phone number. This is, this is crucial. Here's my cell phone number. Put this in your phone. And they'll be like, oh, okay, everyone, oh, no problem. We get out their phone. And they're like, okay. And then they start typing it in. You know, Here's my number, blah, blah, blah. And they're like, okay, text me back. So I've got your number. Well, guess what I just did, right? I, I, now, I, I, because I offered, I gave them my number first and then they text me back. They just opted in and didn't know it, okay? So now I've got their number, okay? But what I, that's, so that's the way to secure the, secure the lead essentially, right? But now what I want them to do is I still want them to jump online and I want them to register on our investor platform or opt in on one of our websites so that they automatically get on that autoresponder. Because again, remember, marketing is sales in print. So I want to get them from a face-to-face meeting, Kerwin. I want to get them to this digital engagement because that way I can nudge on them. I can nudge on them without calling them, without texting them, without bothering them. I just magically show up in their inbox every four days. Like I just magically show up with a new podcast or a new YouTube video that educates them about the commandments of investing and how to get great returns and you know nine different profit centers for multifamily investments, all these little videos that we do. And all of a sudden, when they get on the phone with me, they're like, yeah, I watched your video about this, this, and that. Like, when do you have a deal coming up? Jackpot, right? Bang. So I, I want to get like, so these offline meetings, which are important, you go to meetups. Like I love to go to Kerwin. I love to go to e-commerce events, Right. Because e-commerce guys who are successful with an e-com store that sell physical products, they love to invest in real estate for passive income, right? They understand the, the, the value of taking their earned income from their e-com business and investing passively in a, in, in a syndication. They love that. So I meet a lot of guys at these e-commerce events. And then when I lean on them or drip on them through an engagement and an autoresponder, then the, by the time we're on a one-on-one call or a webinar, like they're warmed up pretty good, Right. So that's, that's the process that I would use. There was one deal that Josh invested in with a partner that went over budget. Having oversight is important. On that deal, things didn't go as planned, but 
Josh now makes sure to have oversight when he teams up with operators. The number one lesson that I learned is investing with operators or investing with partners and not controlling the cash or not having significant oversight. Okay. So anytime you lose money, it's always for the same reason, Kermit. It's always for the same reason. It's that someone goes over budget on CapEx or they underperform on the income that's supposed to come in. doesn't matter if it's residential, commercial, apartments, flips, rentals, whatever. It's always every time because they can't manage the cash flow and the rent that's coming in is below market value or below pro forma, or there's vacant units, right? Or they go over and with their CapEx rehab budget. 100% of the time, it's one of those two things. And so when I screwed up was because I was investing with a partner, a friend, a family member, JV partner, who went over budget and I did not have the insight, the oversight of, of, of the books. Um, I relied too much on them to get it right and they didn't. Um, or I had a property manager who wasn't aggressive in leasing and didn't get the pro forma rents that we needed. Um, and so I have you know multiple different goof-ups, screw-ups for the last 15 years. I could go on and on for days about all the things I got wrong. But you know, from a summary perspective, it was definitely those things. And so now I've again insulated myself from those types of mistakes by number one, hiring and bringing on a partner that just focuses on CapEx. That's his silo. That's his vertical. I have another partner that just focuses on property management. That's his silo. I have a CFO that oversees both of them and oversees me to make sure he produces P&Ls every week. We get new P&Ls every Friday. So I can see what's going on with expenses, right? Every Friday. Like I used to wait in the past, sometimes months, months and months to get P&Ls. Well, where are we at with this rehab? Oh, where are we at with this building? And then it was like, punch me in the face, pow, when something was over budget, right? You're like, oh crap. Now there's no all crap moments because every week, every Friday, we're getting these, we're getting the numbers. And that's where you go back to the CEO's job of looking for blind spots. I mentioned earlier. Now, every Monday, that's what I do on Mondays. I look for blind spots, I review PLs, I look for gaps, I look for issues. Cause we still make mistakes. Everybody's gonna make mistakes. We're all human, right? But I wanna get in front of those mistakes as early as possible. The business Josh has built speaks for itself. He has a great portfolio and he's built great relationships with his partners that have enabled him to reach the point he's at today. I think we've had a tremendous amount of success. I think you gotta be very grateful no matter where you're at. Um, and I think that's, that's definitely an attribute of success. It's an attribute of being a successful owner, CEO. It's an attribute of really being a successful anything is having gratitude. So, um, you know, I would, I would be remiss if I said, uh, you know, we're in good shape, but we got to be so much better. You know, like, I think what's important is to say, look, I'm grateful for where we are. Um, you know, 3,700 units. Um, you know, I've got amazing partnerships with some really good guys. And again, they don't always, they don't always get it right either. You know, we, we definitely still make mistakes, but um, look, man, it's a, it's a $300 million portfolio. Again, I wish I owned it all. I don't, but I do own a big chunk of it. We've got partners. I've got some GV partners. I've got some, you know, passive investors. We own a big chunk of it. So um, look, man, you know, in the grand scheme of things, when I look back at, you know, my parents filing for bank, I was very raised, very middle-class curve. When I grew up in a 1400 square foot ranch that had an unfinished basement, my parents filed for bankruptcy when I was in sixth grade. They struggled to put me through Catholic grade school, Catholic high school. 
but my dad had the stones to start a business when I was in college. And my dad built that business from two employees to 40. Um, and, you know, that to me is, is a success, right? Um, and I think what I've done now is kind of taken the torch from my dad. And my dad's, you know, since passed away, he passed away in November from a long battle with Parkinson's. And I think, you know, my job in this next phase of my life is to take what I've learned and to use that to the absolute best I can and to really build with my brain, right? And I don't have to build with my hands. I'm not handy at all. I don't need to work hundred hours a week. I need to think, think my way through it because I've been blessed Kerwin. when I've been blessed. God's blessed me with so many relationships, access to money, friendships, amazing people, employees, staff, podcasts like this, relationships with guys like you. I mean, really, like I've just been gifted with an abundance of so much. And so at this point, like success to me is growth. It's, it, it's not just growing for the sake of growing, but it's growing smart from here. Because if I just keep doing what I'm doing, I mean, there's just absolutely no ceiling. There's just no, there's no, I, I could do what we could do whatever, right? We've got so much going for us. Um, and so I think success is really, it's about, it's about, you know, still continuing to build and scale, but doing it with very humble, very great, grateful roots. Right. Um, you know, if I, if I became arrogant, um, if I took too much risk, I mean, my dad, my dad would come from the grave and he would step on my throat, <laughs> you know? I mean, so he'd be like, you idiot. Like you've been given so much, like, don't be cavalier with it. Don't be it. Don't be, don't be too risky with it. You get to a certain level where it's like, you just got to continue to make really smart, safe, secure investments. They don't have to take a flyer on anything. Um, and so that's, that, that's, that's, that's probably the most honest answer I could give you. Josh's long-term vision for his business is to grow his portfolio. His business is structured in a way that helps his partners and his investors reach their financial goals and create generational wealth for their families. The number to us is 950, okay? 950 is significant in my business because um, under our current structure, every 950 units that we buy yields exactly $100,000 per month of net free distributable cash flow, okay? We make about $1,300 to $1,400 per year per unit that we own. Okay, so 950 units equals $1.2 million a year of net free, spendable, distributable cash flow to me, partners, and investors. Um, so I don't know that I've got a number like, oh, I want to own 25,000 units. I want to be a billionaire. Like, who gives a shit about being a billionaire? I, seriously, like, who cares? What is important to me is that the hundreds of investors that work with us. I know, again, going back to my financial planning days, that that's their peace of mind. That's how they sleep well at night. That's what they're going to do with their money to put their kids and grandkids through college. That's what they're going to do to live and buy their second home in Naples, Florida, or San Diego, California. You know, They're going to take their trips to Mexico and enjoy their life. I don't take that for granted. Um, and so what I think about really is how do I buy 950 units a year in a very smart, 
safe, um, well underwritten conservative way. And how do I bring along all the investors to fund those 950 units? Now, some years we buy a lot more than that, right? And some years, not as much, but, um, you know, that that's the number. Like to me, that's the number that burns in my brain. And when we get to the point where we maybe have 10,000 units or 20,000 units, that's cool, you know, whatever. Um, but I also know guys, look, one guy in my town, apparently is the biggest apartment owner in the city. And the rumor is that the guy's been divorced like three times. He's got two kids on drugs. He goes to the strip club every day at noon and he wastes all of his money. He's a billionaire. So do you really want to be a billionaire if that's what your life looks like? Like not me, right? Um, and so to me, that's what it's all about, man, is it really incremental growth, annual growth. Um, and if we could be really smart about just continuing to add to the portfolio, that's what really matters. Having access to capital is critical when it comes to investing. And Josh serves his investors so he can empower them to fulfill their purpose in life. Josh understands the importance of this, and that's why he cherishes and protects his investors at all costs. Really two, two, I would say, number one, funding equals freedom, okay? And what I mean by that is that, look, you can get bank debt. Um, you can even get institutional private equity to invest in your apartment deals or your mobile home parks or you know self-storage or whatever you want to do. But Funding from private investors, true private investors, mom and pops, accredited, non-accredited, whatever they are, that's the secret sauce, right? You can do work with those people, help them invest their money wisely, help them sleep well at night, like we talked about multiple times, help them have peace of mind. They will invest with you and reinvest with you and reinvest with you, and you will be wealthy, but you got to get the funding for that. And then funding equals freedom because you buy the asset and then that creates the freedom from the cash flow. That's number one. Number two is be daring. Okay. And the reason why I say that is because, you know, going back to my um, story with cancer, um, I had surgery November 21st, 2011. And I was in the ICU for four days. I was in the hospital for 10 days. Um, and the surgeon basically saved my life on the operating table. Um, the cancer mass that I had, pancreatic cancer, was as big as a basketball. It was as big as my head. It was the same diagnosis as Steve Jobs from Apple Computer, who died just a year after I was uh, diagnosed. He died in 2012. Um, and I'll never forget, six weeks after my surgery, I went to see my oncologist. It was the, the cancer doctor who originally diagnosed me with cancer. Dr. Ali. And Dr. Ali looked at the report, the surgery report, and he just kind of sat back in his chair and he's like, Josh, this, this is amazing. Um, your surgeon, Dr. Walsh, he's a daring surgeon. And I said, uh, what, what do you mean? Like, what do you mean he's a daring surgeon? Like, I got what? He's like, Josh, I've never seen anything like this before. I've been an oncologist for 25 years. Um, I mean, Dr. Ali opened you up, um, 10 hours on the operating table. Um, you know, I don't know how many breaks this guy had to take 10 hours. Imagine 10 hours of surgery on the operating table, working on him, working on me for 10 hours straight. Um, to give you an idea, Kerwin, they, were, they put in my body. I have everybody else's blood in my body to accept my own. Okay. Um, they put in 21 units of blood into my body on the operating table to give you perspective. 
you and I, as we sit here right now recording this podcast, you have seven units of blood in your body. So during the surgery, over those 10 hours, they cycled everybody else's blood through my body three times over. And what I realized from this and what I realized from Dr. Ali saying, you know, Dr. Walsh is a daring surgeon and I'm encouraging your audience, Kerwin, to be daring is because look, Dr. Walsh could have been an average, he could have been an average surgeon, he could have been a family practice guy. He could have been, you know, um, you know, could have been a million different things, but he decided that he was going to spend his time learning, studying, engaging, working late hours, you know, studying case studies. And he became one of the world's greatest surgeons. He's at the Cleveland Clinic. You can look him up on the internet. His name is Dr. Matthew Walsh. And then when he was presented with the most difficult surgeon surgeries there were, including mine, um, he was ready to be daring, to try something new, to try something different. Um, he was ready to approach something that was not, nobody could even comprehend. Um, you know, when on the operating table, Kerwin, crazy, they took out my stomach, my gallbladder, my spleen, most of my liver, most of my pancreas, 21 units of blood in my body. They took out arteries out of my leg and put them into the back of my um, uh, pancreas because the arteries were crushed. Um, Dr. Ali said that most surgeons would have opened me up, saw how complicated it was and would have sent me home and said, you know, Josh, there's nothing you can do. There's nothing we can do. Sorry. You're terminal. You're 35 years old. You're terminal. And, uh, because Dr. Walsh was daring, he had the stones to try. Um, it's the only reason why I'm here right now, 10 years later. And so from a business perspective, um, I would tell everybody, look, funding equals freedom. From a personal perspective, I would tell all of you guys to be daring, like no regrets, be the best, try everything you can, you know, um, and ultimately at the end of the day, you're going to screw up, you're going to make mistakes, but you'll have no regrets of what you tried to accomplish. And then you will save someone's life. You will do things that you never thought were possible like Dr. Walsh did for me. That's the advice I would give our guys today. If you want to learn more about Josh, here's where you can go to do so. Just our main website, go to freelandventures.com slash passive. Um, freelandventures.com is our main website. They'll get access to all of our information and videos and content. And, you know, they can, they can opt in on our investor platform if they want, follow along on our journey. That would be fantastic. So just go check us out there. Thank you for joining us today on the Real Estate Monopoly podcast. If you got value from this episode, please do us a favor and give us a good rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. Make sure to visit our website at www.donisinvestmentgroup.com backslash monopoly, where you can subscribe to our newsletter so you'll never miss a show. If you want to avoid the top five mistakes passive investors make, you can also check out our free ebook by going to www.donisinvestmentgroup.com and downloading it. Be sure to tune in to our next episode. Until then, take care, guys.